Before we get into this episode, we wanted to let you know that registration is now open for our Junior Fellows program. Since 2013, the Theopolis Institute has been training imaginative, courageous Christian leaders to meet the challenges of our time. We have erected scaffolding for the work of rebuilding the house of God. And this summer, we are making it easier for you to join this band of dedicated leaders when we inaugurate our revised Junior Fellows program. We are admitting up to 30 men and women as 2019-2020 Junior Fellows. We are going to meet for two weeks in July and then one week again in January 2020. Junior Fellows will learn how to read the Bible, master the fundamentals of liturgy, and engage with critical cultural problems and thinkers. Each day will be punctuated by worship and psalm singing. For more information and for registration, there is a link in the show notes, and you can also go to theopolisinstitute.com, click on Events and Junior Fellows Program. Hey friends, and welcome to episode 204 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to continue his thoughts on Genesis 27, and he's specifically going to be focusing on how to lie or deceive the enemy, and also the importance of the ear and hearing in this passage. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching, and as always, thank you so much for listening. We're in chapter 27 of Genesis, and we are to the point where Isaac is tricked into blessing Jacob. Rebecca has prepared the meal, and now in chapter 27, verses 18 to 29, we come to the next panel in the narrative, which concerns the blessing, as we'll see, uh, only a semi-blessing of Esau, which goes to Jacob instead. So we'll start reading in verse 18 of Genesis 27. And he, that is, Jacob. And he came to his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Which one are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you spoke to me. Pray arise. Sit. And eat from my hunted game, that you may give me your own blessing. And Yitzchak said to his son, How did you find it so hastily, my son? And he said, Indeed, Yahweh your God made it happen for me. And Yitzchak said to Yaakov, Pray come closer that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esav or not. And Yaakov moved closer to Yitzchak his father, and he felt him. And he said, The voice is Yaakov's voice, and the hands are Esau's hands. And he did not recognize him, for his hands were like the hands of Esau, his brother, Harry. And he was about to bless him. And he said, Are you he, my son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it close to me, and I will eat from the hunted game of my son, that I may give you my own blessing. And he brought it close to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And Yitzchak his father said to him, Pray come close and kiss me, my son. And he came close and kissed him. 
And he smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Behold, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that Yahweh is blessed. So may God give you from the dew of the heavens, from the fat of the earth, much grain and new wine. May people serve you. May tribes bow down to you. Be great one to your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who curse you cursed. Those who bless you blessed. That's the passage read in Hebrew cadence. We'll have to review a bit for our visitors, but here we are in Genesis chapter 26, 34 to 28, verse 9. That's the pericope. It starts and ends with Esau's marrying wicked wives. Esau marries at the same age as Isaac. Abraham was very careful to make sure Isaac married within the covenant. Isaac doesn't take any such care at all. Esau marries outside the covenant. He marries wicked women. Thirty-seven years later, these women are still wicked. Esau's sons have grown up in this situation. Esau's sons are unquestionably wicked. The Bible fills that in for us. Even though God has commanded that Esau is not to inherit and Jacob is, even though Jacob and Esau bargained for this birthright and it has gone to Jacob, Isaac still intends to disobey God. He intends to disobey the law. He intends to take the covenant and give it to the wicked son. He intends to destroy the covenant. And for one reason only, that he likes the food of Esau. His God has become his belly, and Isaac has become Esau. And the story that we just read is very similar in some ways, in certain important ways, to the story of Esau selling his birthright. Esau comes in, Esau can't wait five minutes for somebody else to cook him something to eat. There are servants all over this camp, but he sees the food he wants, and he despises his birthright and gives it all up for food. Isaac has become Esau. Isaac despises the covenant. He's willing to give the entire covenant up in order to get food that he likes from the son he likes, Esau's food. Two trees in the garden, two sons, one food that's right, one food that's wrong. So, now we have the problem. Isaac is a tyrant. He intends to kill the covenant. He's been a righteous man up to this point, but now he's in sin. Rebecca, who is the new Abraham in this passage, who is righteous, is providentially walking by when this happens. Now, there's no way she'd been hanging around listening for 40 years to see when this was going to happen. She just happens to be there in the providence of God, and so she takes steps to make sure that God's word is obeyed and that the covenant goes to the person that God has commanded it should go to, who is Jacob. But more than that, and I think we'll see this even more importantly today, Rebecca's actions are intended to save her husband from his sin. She is the mother of the seed. She cares for the seed. She cares for the covenant. She says at the end of this passage, if the covenant is destroyed, then why should I have ever lived in the first place? Because I'm the mother of the seed, and God has put me in this position. She knows who Abraham is. She knows what the covenant with Abraham is. She knows that the Messiah is to come from Abraham. She knows the Messiah is to come from Isaac. She knows, therefore, that she is the mother of the Messiah. At some point down the line, the Messiah is going to come from her and her children. So she knows all this. This has been clearly revealed, and she's fully acquainted with it, and she is concerned that Isaac is going to destroy all that. This is the death and resurrection of the Abrahamic covenant here. Isaac kills the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which has grown and developed up to this point, Abraham had developed it. Isaac had done right with his wife. 
Isaac had ministered to the Gentiles. Isaac had dug all these wells of water. Isaac had done great work early on, but now the covenant as it is developed is going to be killed and it has to be brought to life again. At least that's the intention. And that's why this passage is full of death as we've seen. Death pervades the passage. I'm old, I'm about to die. Go get me this stuff before I die. Rebecca says, if somebody has to die around here, let it be me. She offers to give her life for the covenant. Then afterwards, Esau intends to kill Isaac. Rebecca says, why should I continue to live if things are going to continue to be this way? Death is all over the place because this is about the death and resurrection of the covenant in one way. And the covenant passes from Isaac to Jacob because Isaac has failed and therefore Jacob has to be the replacement for Isaac and do what Isaac didn't do. Now, let's look then at the passage that we're at. Rebecca has set all this up. Isaac is obeying his mother who is the queen mother. He is in submission to her. He's 77 years old, but he's still in the household. Hearken to my voice, my son, obey me, she says. And so he does. She prepares the food for Isaac. Now, we'll read it. Verse 18. Jacob came to his father and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, which one are you, my son? Isaac's suspicions here start. And Isaac shows that he's suspicious throughout this entire situation. And there is a psychological element in this text, I believe. And in fact, we know it because when Isaac is caught, he is shattered and he trembles violently. There's rising tension here because Isaac knows he's in sin. He knows he's trying to sneak around and do this the wrong way. See, what Isaac should have done was call all of his sons and all of his servants together and say, let us go to the mountain. Let us prepare a meal of the delicacies that Yahweh loves and I will bless my sons with Yahweh's blessing before I die. But that's not what he does. He sneaks around behind the back, tries to keep it a secret. Secretly, he doesn't tell his wife about it, doesn't tell anybody else about it, and he sure doesn't tell God about it. And he's going to have only Esau in and on the sly give him this blessing. We also saw that the requirement that he be given a meal puts himself in the place of God. He has to be given a meal. He has to be propitiated, and then he will give the blessing. And that's God's position, not Isaac's position. So in his sin, Isaac makes himself God. That's what Adam and Eve did. Chose the wrong food, make themselves God. Isaac chooses the wrong food, makes himself God. So he needs to be tripped up. He's suspicious. Which one are you? Now, probably the reason he's suspicious is that this seems to happen too fast. Esau goes out to kill a deer, and then he's got to dress it, and then he's got to cook it, and then spice it up. And he thinks, has there been enough time for this to happen? And so Jacob comes in, and his voice doesn't sound quite right to him. This is real clear in this passage. Jacob and Esau didn't have the same timbre of voice. They weren't identical twins. We know that because one was hairy and one wasn't. They're fraternal twins. Their voices have different timbres. And he immediately, when he says, Here am I, he says, Father, my father. Isaac is immediately suspicious because the voice doesn't sound quite right and it's come too soon. But he's tense. And his tension is only going to increase. And the reason he's tense is because he knows he's doing something wrong and he's sneaking around. He's afraid he's going to get caught. He's a hundred and... How old is he? What do we say? Isaac is 137 years old. It's been about 120 years since he was spared from being sacrificed on Mount Moriah. 
So he's got a lot of experience with God. And even though he's trying to sneak around behind God's back, he knows he's probably going to get caught. And sure enough, he is. And that's why when he is caught, he doesn't fight anymore. Now, Jacob just flat out lies to him. And he lies boldly in this passage. And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you spoke to me. Pray, arise, sit and eat from my hunted game that you may give me your own blessing. There are at least four lies here. He claims to be Esau. He claims that Isaac spoke to him. I've done as you spoke to me. Eat this hunted game. It's not hunted game. It's a kid of the goats. Spiced up like hunted game. And in terms of deceiving Isaac, he says, give me your own blessing. Remember, we saw that whose blessing is it? Is it Isaac's blessing or Yahweh's blessing? Isaac believes it's his to give as he wants. And Rebecca, when she paraphrases, says, give you blessing before Yahweh, which is a little bit closer to what it should have been. Well, there's ambiguity in what this blessing is, as we'll see. Is this the blessing that he's going to receive or not? What is it? We'll get to it. Now, there are three possibilities here. Well, there's two possibilities, actually. One is that Jacob is in sin for doing this. But he's not. It's right to deceive a tyrant, especially if you're protecting the kingdom of God. And I think we've been over that enough times. Especially in Genesis, the serpent deceived Eve, and so it is women who deceive the serpent back again. Sarah deceives Pharaoh. Sarah deceives Abimelech. Rebecca deceives Abimelech. The Hebrew midwives deceive Pharaoh. They lie to him flat out. Oh, Hebrew women, they give birth so quick we can't get there in time to kill the baby. Well, now that's a lie. Rahab lies. The book of James says that she's shown to be just by the fact that she lied and deceived the wicked. Giles lies. God puts lies in the mouths of women because Satan lied to the woman, therefore, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's perfectly just to return a lie to Satan. And the whole biblical philosophy of the just lie, if you're in wartime, you deceive the enemy. If you're on the battlefield, you give out false information. There's nothing wrong with lying to the enemy in wartime. If the Nazis come to your door and say, are you hiding any Jews here? You say, Jews? What Jews? Never heard of Jews. Don't know nothing about no Jews here. Even if you got a basement full of them. You lie. And this passage does have a little bit to say to us about how to lie. If it's right to lie and deceive the enemy, and the Bible says it is, then don't do a wimpy job. If they knock on your door and say, you hiding any Jews in here? You don't say, oh, well, uh, uh, no, no, I don't, I'm not, well, you know, what, what, what do you mean by Jews? Do you mean Orthodox Jews or, or uh, Reformed Jews? You're talking synagogue Jews or temple Jews. You don't fool around with it. You know, you say, no, I hate Jews. If you find any Jews, let me know. I'd like to throw a stone at them. Anything I can do to help you guys track down Jews, let me know. I'm on your side. See this swastika right here on my door? Hey, I'm all for you guys. You just lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. Well, you might not go quite that far if it involves betraying Christ. But you just lie to the max because they have no right to the truth because they're tyrants. They intend to kill. So, to protect life, you lie. Commandment says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tear your neighbor down. It doesn't say don't ever tell a lie. The Bible has many lies in it. No, the Hebrew midwives didn't go into the Pharaoh and say, well, I don't know, Pharaoh. No, they just were flat out. So, well, you don't understand, Pharaoh. Jews are a different race of people. 
Well, they all got hooked noses. You Egyptians don't. You got flat noses. You're not like us. And Egyptian women may take two, three hours to deliver, but hey, Hebrew women, they go into transition and pop that baby out. It takes about ten minutes. There's no way we can get there in time. So they just lie. Jacob lies. And he lies boldly because he's deceiving the enemy of God. And this is righteous because it's deception for deception. And especially in this case, Isaac is deceiving God. And God sets up that he is deceived. Isaac is intending to deceive Rebekah. So Rebekah deceives him back. Isaac intends to deceive Jacob. So Jacob deceives him back. But the reason that's righteous is because Isaac has made himself the enemy of the covenant and intends to destroy the covenant by giving all of God's covenantal blessings to Esau and his wicked family who will destroy them. So you have to take steps. Second of all, in talking about Jacob, that he does right, he obeys his mother. He doesn't just come up with this on his own. Rebecca is the mother of the seed. In fact, she says, if there's going to be any problem, let it be on me. And the third thing we can say about it is that because of the riddle character of so many of these passages of the Bible, there's always an additional element. And there's a sense in which almost everything he says here is true in a certain kind of a way. Because that's what Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker. Well... Darth Vader is your father in a certain kind of way. Well, it all depends on what the meaning of is is when we talk about these deceptions. Well, here again, you can dissemble as a righteous person or as a wicked person. Jacob does, in the sense, the same kind of thing using verbal trickery, but he's doing it with a righteous intention. He's not covering up adultery and rape. He's saying things that are misleading because he is deceiving a wicked person. He's not seeking to deceive the righteous. He's seeking to deceive the wicked. So he says, I am the firstborn. Well, that's true in that God had said right from the beginning, Jacob is to be considered the firstborn. Esau was never to be considered the firstborn. He came out of Rebekah's body first, but that was it. As far as legality and the covenant is concerned, God said right from the beginning, Jacob is to be treated as firstborn. For 77 years, Isaac has refused to obey that. So he says, yeah, I'm your firstborn. That's true covenantally according to what God has said. It's not what Isaac intends. So he is not answering Isaac's question in Isaac's terms, but he could justify this and say, well, yeah, I am the firstborn. Thus, what Isaac says to Esau is properly said to Jacob. If Isaac is going to bless his firstborn, then Jacob should be the one to get it because Jacob is the firstborn. These words are somewhat interchangeable. We studied this three moons ago in chapter 25, verses 23 and 25. You'll have to look back in your notes from that. But these words, younger Seir and Seir, hairy goat, and Esau, are related words. When he says, I am... Esau, your firstborn, he could say, well, I said I was the younger one. Who is your firstborn? Well, he says, eat of my hunted game, he says. Well, this is Jacob's hunted game. Jacob went out and hunted down those two goats. Probably had to catch them. They probably didn't come up and say, he probably had to go and get them. So he hunted them down, and they're Jacob's hunted game. 
No, it's not a lie. It's my honey game. I procured it and he spiced it up according to instructions. And he says, give me your own blessing. Well, whose blessing is this? It's supposed to be Yahweh's blessing. We'll see it's not quite. But we don't know that at this point. At this point, what we're going to expect to hear Isaac say is, may the God of Abraham be your God, and may he give you the land that he promised to Abraham, and may your seed be like the stars of the heaven and like the sand of the sea for multitude. Because that's the Abrahamic promise. Land, seed, glory, and name. Make your name great. As a matter of fact, Isaac is not going to say any of these things when he gives the blessing to him. So what Isaac is going to give is not really the blessing of Abraham. He really is going to give something different. But Rebekah could not know that. Jacob couldn't know that. Everything appeared as if it was going to be the original Abrahamic blessing that was going to be passed on at this point. So whose blessing is it? Well, it's Isaac's in the sense that it's his to pass on. It's God's in the sense that God is going to be invoked in this blessing in a way indirectly, and it's not entirely deceptive for him to say, give me your own blessing, when he's thinking it'll be Jehovah's blessing as well. But, having said all that, that there's some verbal trickery that's going on here, it doesn't change the fact that this is in context a bald-faced lie, because he knows that Isaac is going to hear this language a certain way, and he intends to deceive him. We have to say, it's right to deceive a person in this circumstances, and when we are called upon to lie, we should lie boldly. Now Isaac starts to have some tests here. Isaac is suspicious. And his suspicions increase because way back in the back of his mind, Isaac knows almost certainly that he's not going to get by with this. He's doing something that he's going to get caught at. He spent too many years with God not to know that this isn't going to work. He's going to try it anyway. So verse 20, Isaac said to his son, How did you find this so hastily, my son? And Jacob says, Yahweh, your God, made it happen to me. Well, that's true enough. How did Yahweh make it happen? Well, the first thing is Yahweh caused Rebekah to just happen to be by the tent at the time when this whole plot was hatched. So that's providential coincidence right there. For all days to be roaming by the tent and over here, this going on. God made that happen. And of course, God caused Rebecca to have the plot to deceive. And God caused the kids of the goats to be right there. So God has caused all this to come to pass and he's not telling a lie, technically. But, of course, Isaac's question meant, how did you get out in the woods and find a deer and get it back here and cook it so fast? And he's not answering what Isaac's real question is. So, the words are true enough, but in context, it's deceptive. But it's interesting that he ascribes it to the Lord. And I think, again, hearing the name Yahweh might have made Isaac feel a bit funny about the situation. Because Yahweh is... Is that the omnipotent name of God or the covenant name of God? It's the covenant name. And then what Isaac is doing is breaking the covenant here. He's destroying the covenant. At least he's trying to. So, for this name Yahweh to show up here in this passage instead of a name like El Shaddai, which will show up in chapter 28 when the true blessing is given, that probably has something significant here in terms of reminding us that this is all about the covenant 
And it's the covenant God who is working with Jacob, and Isaac is trying to break the covenant and get around the covenant that God has set up. God has said Jacob was to inherit, and Isaac doesn't want Jacob to inherit. Isaac likes Esau. Well, also, uh, Isaac has a second test. He's still suspicious. In fact, he's getting more suspicious because he keeps hearing Jacob's voice. Verse 21, 23a. Isaac said to Jacob, Pray come closer that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. Jacob moved closer to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. The hands are Esau's hands. He didn't recognize him, for his hands were like the hands of Esau, his brother. Say ear, hairy, hairy goat. Well, now, we see this rising tension, and this tension is just going to rise and rise and rise until Isaac feels like at last he has succeeded in blessing Esau, and then the tension is going to be shattered when Isaac trembles with a great trembling, and he'll collapse. I don't know enough psychology to really move through this, but there is that depth to it here, that Isaac is jerked around and then broken down. Now what's interesting is, Isaac trusts his sense of feel, which replaces his sense of sight, instead of his ears, and his ears are what are telling him the truth. We're told to hear the Word of God and to trust the Word of God more than anything we see. As you know, Peter says that we have the Word of God which is more certain than the experience of seeing Jesus in the transfiguration. But Isaac does not trust his ears. He trusts his other senses. He trusts his sense of smell, and he trusts his sense of feeling. If he still had eyes, he would trust them. But, of course, that has to be taken out of the way because his eyes would tell him right away. He doesn't trust his ears. Isaac is really more deaf than he is blind. Because if his ears were telling him clear as day that this is Jacob. And the only reason this works is because Isaac has stopped his ears up to the Word of God and he stopped his ears up to the voice of Jacob. He doesn't hear right. Well, Isaac is still suspicious. Verse 23 to 24, this is the third test. Now he was about to bless him when he said, Are you he, my son Esau? And he said, I am. Now this question is so carefully phrased as to admit no ambiguity. Are you he? Are you the one who is called Esau? You know I'm asking No possible ambiguity here. Jacob, consistent. No ambiguity in his answer. I am. So, now, Isaac feels like he's got all the evidence he needs. And the main piece of evidence that's right in front of his face, they would have told him that it was Jacob, he ignores, he sets aside. The passage raises it up. The voice is Jacob's voice. We know that Isaac can tell that it's Jacob. But so committed is he to his idolatry of food that he sets that aside. But that's why when the real Esau shows up later on, Isaac instantly knows what's happened. Because part of him knew it was Jacob all along. He couldn't help but know. People's voices don't sound the same. And they say, we've got 77 years of hearing these two boys' voices. We know they don't sound the same. They're mature voices for all that. They're not even little kids' voices that sometimes sound more alike. No. He's got all the information he needs. 
but it's overwhelmed by his lust for food. And we've got to go back to Genesis 3 for that. Wanting the wrong food, calling evil good and good evil. Well, okay, now we have the meal that's offered to the false god. Verse 25, He said, Bring it close to me and I will eat from the hunted game of my son in order that I may give you my own blessing. He put it close to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Isaac associates eating the food first with giving the blessing. Bring me this food, bring me this sacrifice, I will eat it, and then I will give you the blessing. Now remember, the contrast here is with Jacob. Jacob means replacement, and he was replacement for Isaac. And in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, there's nothing about preparing a meal to give to him. He doesn't say, oh, okay, all you sons. But in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, there's nothing about being offered a meal first. He doesn't say, come and offer me a meal and I'll bless you. No, he just gathers them together and blesses them. And he gives them the Lord's blessing. He calls good, good, and evil, evil. And he has knowledge of good and evil. But that's what this pronouncing of blessing is. That's why knowledge of good and evil means something that you get when you're mature. Adam and Eve couldn't have it. They were newborn babies. But when you're mature, when you're an old guy, and you have all your sons in, and you say, Simeon and Levi are violent men, curses on you. Reuben, you unstable as water, judgment's on you. Joseph, double blessings on you. When you're passing judgment, you're saying good and evil. That's what good and evil means in the Bible. Not just moral good and evil, but passing judgments of good and evil. God saw that it was good, passing judgments. Jacob has that knowledge of good and evil in chapter 49, and he passes the right judgments on his two kinds of sons. That's the contrast to this passage. Isaac is calling evil good and good evil. He's passing judgments all the wrong way because he's blind, and part of it is he wants to be treated like God and offered a sacrifice. And we've spent time in previous weeks on all the sacrificial undertones in this passage. So, give me the food first, and then I'll give you the blessing. Well, that's how we do with God in the sacrificial system. If you want to be blessed by God, you come in, you bring the animal, you kill it, you know, the blood is displayed, the animal is put on the altar, and then God blesses you. Isaac puts himself in that position here. Drinking wine, this is the first time that's mentioned, but here it is. Drinking wine is associated with enthroned rest, it's associated with kingship, and with God's enthronement in the Sabbath. The Bible talks about God drinking wine and making his heart glad because he is king. He's finished his work and he's sitting down. When you sit down, you have a glass of wine. When you're still working, you don't. You may grab some bread to keep you fueled up, but you don't drink wine on the job. So the priests are always standing. They're always on the job. They don't drink wine. But the king is in rest. And Isaac is being treated that way. And this is part of the meal. Also, wine is a libation. When you offer a sacrifice, you pour wine out on top of it as part of the meal that's offered to your God. And that's true in the book of Numbers, Numbers 15 as well. Well, then Isaac, his father, says to him, verse 26, Pray, come close and kiss me, my son. You see, now Jacob is allowed to draw near after the false god has eaten the food offered to him. Again, think of the sacrificial system. You start with the sin offering, and after that, you can draw nearer with the ascension offering, or the burnt offering, and that transports you up into the palace of God, and you can have the communion offering, which is the peace offering where you share the meal with God, and that's the order of the sacrifices. So, what is happening here? Well, that's not really in the picture, sin offering, but the ascension is, we've offered the food, 
And now you can draw near on the basis of having brought a meal to this God. Isaac, who's made himself God like Adam tried to, and you bring a meal to him and he says, okay, now you can draw near and kiss me. He came close and kissed him. What is kissing in the Bible? What is kissing, period? Yeah, kissing is eating. Then you have to ask the question, why in the world do people kiss each other? What a weird thing. Well, the reason is, it's kind of a deep psychological and somewhat symbolic way of wanting to become unified with the other person, become one with them. And so you fall on the neck of your brother or your friend, greet one another with a holy kiss because we're all one body in Christ. And it's a full acceptance, full acceptance, becoming as mutual as possible without being married. Man to man, it's going to be a kiss. Not on the mouth, but on the cheek or neck. Well, now we read the verses. I don't know how your verses are in your English Bible. If you've got the Fox translation, which follows the Hebrew versification, some of these verse changes are weird. We should start here now. He smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Look, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field Yahweh is blessed. Smelling the sweet savor of the sacrifice is also part of the sacrificial ritual. And this is really Isaac's last test and his last deception. Next, I'm going to check this out one last time and he smells them. What does he smell? He smells Esau's clothes. So that tricks him one last time. And once again, if he had just used his ear gate, the Bible says the ear is the most important organ. If you had a choice between becoming blind and becoming deaf, you have to choose to become blind. At least keep your ears. Now, of course, we think exactly the opposite. I don't know that I could make that choice the right way. If somebody said, you have a choice between becoming blind or becoming deaf, ooh, that would be tough. But biblically speaking, the ear is more important. I'll just remind you of this. Looking at me, you know nothing about me. It's only as I talk that my personality is revealed to you. That's true of anybody. You see a photograph of somebody you don't know and you just see a picture... You don't know anything about them. Okay, you might see a picture of some really pretty-looking country western singer. Real nice-looking. You think, boy, what a pretty lady. i like to meet her. And if you met her, you might find that every third word out of her mouth was a swear word, and she was full of sarcasm. Well, then, as soon as she talked, you'd find out that what's inside is something you don't want to be with at all. It's words that reveal persons to one another. Sight has nothing to do with personality. And our relationship with God is totally personal. We can't see Him because He's invisible. And so it's only language that can reveal the personality of God to us and our personalities to one another. Well, what's happening here? Jacob is revealed in his voice. The voice tells Isaac, this is Jacob, because the voice tells the personality. Everything else has got nothing to do with it. The clothes, hey, this could be anybody's clothes. The hairy hand, hey, that could be anybody's hairy hand. The food, anybody could have made this food. The one thing that would tell you for sure is the voice. Isaac has stopped up his ears. He's not hearing God, and so he's not hearing anything right. Because he is in idolatry with food. And so, even though he's terribly suspicious, and even though the facts are right in front of his face, and you think, how in the world could he not know who this is? And Jacob has had a lot of words here. 
He said whole sentences here. Where else in the Bible do you have an instance where somebody's speech betrayed him? Very famous one. Peter, yeah. Oh, we hear from your speech that you're a Galilean. You used to be with Jesus, right? No, no, no. No, sir, I'm not a Galilean. Well, you sound like you're from the south to us. No, no, I'm not from the south. <laughs> well, Galilee was in the north, wasn't it? No, I'm not from the north. Oh, your speech betrays you. They could pick it up right away. Isaac doesn't pick it up, even though it's right in front of him. So that's what's an interesting thing about this passage. I don't think we want to just let it slide by without noticing it. He's deaf. And it's because he stopped up his ears to God's Word that he doesn't hear anything right. He didn't hear God's command in the beginning, which was Jacob is to be treated as firstborn. He didn't pay attention to the clear fact that it was Jacob's voice. Now we come to this blessing. Well, before he says it, he says, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field Yahweh is blessed. Well, that's good biblical imagery because human beings are made of dirt. And so since human beings are made of dirt, we smell like dirt. We smell like the field. Not exactly. But it's Jacob, not Esau, that is the earthy man that Yahweh is blessed. He says, My son smells like a field that Yahweh is blessed. Well, Isaac has not been blessed by God. Jacob has been. And so, Isaac partially is picking up on something that's true here, but he's not getting the whole picture. Well, what about the blessing? Well, this is an interesting blessing. May God give you dew of the heavens, fat of the earth, grain and wine. What's that got to do with Esau? Esau's a hunter-gatherer. He's an Nimrod who goes around hunting animals. Jacob is the one who manages the household economy. He's the one who takes care of the sheep and the goats, the camels, the oxen. The donkeys, he's the one who takes care of the crops. This blessing about dew and the fat of the earth and grain and wine, much more appropriate for Jacob. In a sense, it's Jacob's blessing, the blessing of an agriculturalist, not that of a hunter-gatherer. But what we see in this is Isaac intended to take all that Jacob had been managing for 60 years and turn it over to Esau. Remember the picture that we have here is that Isaac is this pastoralist. He's got servants, he's got sheep, He's got goats, he's got camels, he's got oxen, he's got fields, he's got wells of water. And who's been managing all this for 60 years? Jacob has. And what's Esau been doing? He's been the crown prince, he's been out hunting, fooling around. And Jacob has been managing Isaac's estate. And all of this agriculture and animal husbandry and all the rest of it that Jacob has been managing... Isaac intends to give it all to Esau. We know that because when he has to give a blessing to Esau, all he can say is, you're going to be cut off from all this good stuff. Now, there are five pairs of things here. Stylistically, there are five things. Do of the heavens and fat of the earth. You'll get good stuff coming down from the sky. Gentle water, not torrents of water. And good stuff coming up out of the earth, the fat of the earth. Now, this is fulfilled in Deuteronomy. If you want to look over in Deuteronomy, we're not going to, but if you'll remember it, God talks about the land you're going to is watered by the waters of heaven, unlike the land of Egypt, and it's a land that flows with milk and honey, or there are vineyards and olive yards and all this neat stuff. So this blessing comes true as we go down in history in Jacob's descendants. Second of all, he says, grain and new wine, bread and wine. These are the blessings of the third day of creation, where the bread plants and the wine plants were made on the third day. 
And again, the picture of an Israelite is he has his field and his vineyard. And the law says you're not to plant your field crops in your vineyard, and you're not to mix your vineyard crops in your field. It says everybody has his vine and his fig tree and his olive grove and his field. And everybody has his own garden and his own field. So, again, that blessing is going to be taken up later on in history, and Jacob will inherit it. Then he says, May people serve you and tribes bow down to you. There's going to be a domination over the Gentiles in a sense. We find later on that the law God gives to Israel is one that all the nations will emulate and say, Hey, what nation has such great laws as these? Can we copy your laws, please? And so they'll have influence over all the rest. And other nations will come and bow down to them. The Queen of Sheba comes and so forth. So all these things come to pass. Then he says, and I have to give you a little bit more of a translation here, Be a great one to your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now, that, it raises a question to me, were there some other brothers hanging around here? It doesn't say, be a master over your brother, but he says, plural. Now, some of these words have a slightly broader meaning. Maybe brother includes nephews and nieces, or maybe it includes cousins. Maybe there were some younger sons of Jacob and Esau who were never mentioned in the Bible. Abraham had six other sons after Isaac. Don't know. Maybe this is just a formula. This is just the way you say it. Whether there's one brother or a hundred, you say, be a great one over your brothers. Don't know, but it's interesting to think about. There's no evidence that I know of that there were any other brothers and sisters younger than Jacob and Esau. But there might have been. The Bible wouldn't tell us. The Bible only tells us the things that are important for the covenant history. The word great one here is gibir. The word only occurs here in this passage, here and in verse 37. Does that occur anywhere else in the Bible? The feminine form, gibirah, means queen or great lady. So if you're reading Chronicles and Kings about so-and-so was king and his mother was so-and-so, the word mother there or queen mother is gibirah. So this has something to do with royalty and leadership, but it's closest connected to Gibor. And you may have heard that word before in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where it says there were giants in the earth and there were heroes of the early days, the great ones, men of renown, that were great ones, they were the great ones, is this word Gibor. And more importantly... In chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, who knows already what that refers to? That refers to Nimrod. He is the Gibor, the mighty man. These are the only places where this word shows up. Cush begat Nimrod. He was the first mighty man, Gibor, on the earth. He was a mighty hunter, Gibor, before Yahweh. Therefore the saying is, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter, Gibor, before Yahweh. Now, Isaac says, May you be a Gibir, may you be a Nimrod, over your brothers. Uh, virtually the same word. So that's why I translated it, Be a great one over your brothers. It's not the word for master or lord, Adonai. It's not any of the normal words. It's this word that would pull us right back to the great men before the flood and to Nimrod, the Babel builder after the flood. And I don't know, we'll have to think about this a little bit more, but with a Nimrod theme, and we have the Tower of Babel, and Jacob is given that blessing to be a great one, what happens to Jacob as soon as he leaves? 
He goes out in the wilderness and he sees the Tower of Babel. A ladder reaching to heaven with angels ascending and descending. That's the true Tower of Babel. What does Babel mean? Gate of heaven. He says this is the gate of heaven. The house of God. Bethel. Babel. So, if this word referring to Nimrod, Gibor, Gibir is showing up here, I think it's probably setting up a theme that the true Nimrod... Nimrod is a mighty hunter. Esau is a mighty hunter. But the true mighty hunter is going to be Jacob who replaces Esau. And the true tower of Babel is going to be Bethel, the house of God, where angels ascend and descend that really does reach all the way into heaven because angels ascend and descend all the way to the throne of God. So, just tuck that away. I imagine we'll be coming back to it, but unless you had a marginal note, and I doubt if you do, you would never even know that this is a very unusual word here and that it would instantly call our minds back to Nimrod if we were Jewish and we had heard this read in Hebrew 50 times. At some point we'd say, hey, wait a minute, Gibor, Gibir, that's, hey, Nimrod. Finally, the last pair is cursing and blessing. Those who bless you bless, those who curse you cursed. All the way around, those who curse you curse, those who bless you bless. And do this real quick. This blessing, while it's in some ways Jacob's blessing, all this agricultural stuff, is also appointed for Esau and reveals Isaac's sinful state of mind. Contrast chapter 12, verse 3. Just listen to it. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who disdains you I will curse. So proportionately, what God says to Abraham is, loads of people are going to bless you, and I will bless them. And occasionally someone will disdain you, and I will curse him. As a contrast here, he says, those who curse you cursed, those who bless you bless. Implies many enemies, not just a few. Also, the passive voice leaves God in the background. Is Isaac unable to promise the blessing in the full way? Isaac could have said, May God, may El Shaddai curse the one who curses you. May Yahweh bless the one who blesses you. But it's not positive. It's not strong language. It's weak language. It's in the passive voice. God's name is pretty much left out of this because of Isaac's state of mind. But also the notion that there will be lots of enemies is really more appropriate for Esau. As Esau is the violent man. He's going to have a lot of enemies. But Jacob is the wise man. He's not going to have as many and people say, give me your cloak, Jacob's going to say, okay, have the cloak, have the coat. I've got better things to do than fight with you. He's a peaceful man. Secondly, we can contrast chapter 28, and we'll have to come back to this next week, obviously, but in chapter 28, when the blessing is really given, Isaac says, may El Shaddai bless you and make you bear fruit and make you many and a host and give you the blessing of Abraham and the land of your sojournings. Now, that's the actual Abrahamic blessing. And that's not what we've been looking at for the last ten minutes. So, it's actually only after Isaac has been restored that he can truly pass on the blessing of Abraham. And what he's done here is not really the blessing of Abraham, but only a shadow of it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.